knowledge always kind of goes towards grasping something specific, while being has more to do with an opening of something, a surrendering to something, a way of being able to hold and be with difficult feelings, emotions, experiences, and not necessarily moving towards grasping for something. And then there can be knowledge that gets derived from that experience, which I think is different. I'm Eileen Dunn, and this is The Art of Listening, a podcast that delves into the incomparable power of human connection and the magic of good depth talk therapy. In each episode, professional listeners, seasoned clinicians, share stories about their personal journeys, their professional experience, and how they bridge the gap between receiver and giver, patient and therapist. We discuss the challenge, the wisdom, and the transformative power of listening within ourselves, and with each other. Today's guest is Dwani Shaw. Professional listeners are people. When listeners come to an encounter with someone for the first time, for the last time, and everywhere in between, they bring their own feelings, experiences, penchants, and judgments. We are who we are. These idiosyncratic human truths of ourselves can't be put aside. But this is not a weakness. Embracing our whole selves as listeners is a source of strength. It allows us to show up honestly and authentically. Dwani Shaw spent much of his early career trying to replace the truth of himself in the listening space with academia. Like many, if not most of us, committed to the profession do in the very beginning. But as you'll hear Dwani discuss it, this was a flawed or self-protective goal. In order for him to create an honest space with patients, he first has to be honest with himself. In this episode, Dwani discusses his journey of discovering the power of genuine listening, being fully present with patients, and the consequences of slipping away from this approach. A powerful reminder that embracing our authentic selves as listeners paves the way for more profound and transformative connecting as people. While you're listening, I challenge you to think about these questions. What and how much do you assume of people regularly without even noticing? What holds you back from being your true self in the relationships that matter most? What are the limitations of those relationships when you don't bring and explore your full true self? I'll share my thoughts at the end of the interview. Now, to Dwani. Let me begin at the beginning. You were born in India, but you came to the U.S. at the age of two. Tell me about growing up as an immigrant in this country. How did it shape your view of people and connecting with people? Yeah, so I left India when I was young. And because of that, a lot of the experiences that I carried about India, especially the younger experiences, I carried more in the recesses of my mind as fantasies, desires, wishes to be there, feelings of a motherland that I never quite fully had, that I wish that I had. So growing up in America was always this sense of being and belonging as an American, but only partially in the sense of 
also there being always something else there in my life that was sort of in the background that was mysterious to me that informed who I was, but never really felt fully available to me. I'm thinking too about how, you know, in terms of those primary people of yours, your mom was an artist, your dad was a scientist. You, you know, relocated from your original country to this culture. How did that teach you about communication, social relationships? Well, I grew up in this kind of mysterious household that was very different than other Indian immigrant families, where on the one hand, we had my father, who was a very unorthodox man, but in many ways very traditional. He was an internist, a physician, loved science. The, the books that he had were all about astronomy, physics, medicine, biology, those kinds of things. And then we had my mother, who is incredibly innovative artist who did a lot of installation work, bronzes, in there and paintings. And there the whole house was filled with her canvases of Indian women and also just lots of mysterious kind of enigmatic things that were both violent and sexual also. She like for example, she has a whole series of woodcuts and sculptures where there are guns and women and children are sticking their heads in guns. Women in saris are sticking their heads in guns and it's all about aggression and violence and the plight of women. So there was a lot of that there in the household too. And she would build these huge sculptures that were about 10 feet, 12 feet tall, made of wood and all kinds of intricate Rajasthani miniature engravings of Indian artwork. And then she would break them and burn them and collapse them and create all kinds of Western images that were graffitied on top of them. So here I was growing up in this environment of all of these like incredibly rich and a little bit disturbing images. And then also having this kind of father who was a very kind of paternal <laughs> physician type who <laughs> had a very basic job uh, as a physician. How does your background, how with all of its facets, influence your work? Yeah, I think that the way in which I think about it is is there a way to, to be objective about subjectivity? Or is there a way for us to understand human experience in a way that's not just impressionistic or just based on opinions, but really based on some wisdom, you know, of understanding and being with aspects of human existence that can deepen our understanding of it and for us to have some real purchase on it, for lack of a better word. And I feel like my whole life has been this way of wanting to understand things that are mysterious, enigmatic, difficult to understand. Why do people do the things they do when they're not rational? Why are there myths? Why do we love these stories? Why do people get into these difficult situations that really don't have any basis in kind of rational thinking and quote-unquote scientific rational mindsets? And for me, the most interesting aspects of all of that is, is there a way to understand all of those things in a, in a way that is not just about the rational, but can we be objective and curious and interested and learn things from our subjective experiences and these kinds of enigmatic mysteries? Listen, that's a life mission statement if yeah. you ever heard one. <laughs> I know. You know, it makes me wonder, like as a psychoanalyst, you are practicing the depth work that allows, as you put it, possibilities to emerge. The crucial element of surprise, being able to show up every moment, every hour with each patient and with yourself. Yeah. A brand new moment. And to really listen right. is no, no small thing. And no. as we've discussed, but I wonder specifically, how did you get to psychoanalytic 
training and a psychoanalytic way of being. I feel like in some ways, the way in which I thought about psychoanalysis when I was younger and my fantasies and wanting to be a psychoanalyst when I was younger, even in my training, and I would say even now sometimes, is based on some flawed thinking about knowledge. To say it briefly, though, is that I feel like this idea of wanting to be objective about subjectivity and wanting to understand and know, in some ways, this kind of wanting to know and wanting to understand, I think it took me away from what you just said, which is that patient listening and being with patients and really allowing surprise and aspects of what I wasn't sure about and what I didn't know and what the patient doesn't know and wasn't sure about to emerge. And this kind of way in which things can emerge and they need to emerge as surprises and as ways in which we're mysterious to ourselves and others and keeping that mystery and holding it and being able to be with it. That was a lifelong lesson for me and still continues to be. And I, I struggle with that. But the way I got into psychoanalysis was through actually, interestingly enough, I think my father introducing me to Joseph Campbell and the power of myth when I was little. I loved Star Wars. I loved Greek myths. I loved the Mahabharata and Indian myths. And I loved, I just loved to read all of that stuff. And then I watched this show where this guy was basically breaking it all down and talking about all of these aspects of the myth and what happened in the myth and the myth of the hero and and all the connections between all the different myths and what they say about human beings, human nature. So I was mesmerized by that. I started to love reading Carl Jung and then Freud and then reading existentialism, Greek tragedy, all of that stuff I loved. And then when I went to college, I was really fortunate to be at Rutgers where George Atwood was there. And he was a just this amazing, really generous, like, down-to-earth guy. And he taught my intro to psych class. And he's like, we're not going to do any of this CBT stuff. We're just going to learn about these aspects of like how the mind works. And we're going to really talk about what it's like to be a clinician and to be with people and how a person really is in therapy. And I was like, wow, okay, let's do it. And it all had to do for me, it was, I was always interested in the irrational, you know, and how to make sense of what doesn't make sense and what isn't so easy to figure out and that's where cognitive behavioral therapy never really appealed to me. I mean, it appeals to me more now, actually, especially the elements of exposure and about being able to be with difficult feelings and affects and experiences, which I think is essential. But that whole kind of let's rationally think about this in a way that makes sense. I was drawn to that thinking in some ways, but in other ways I, re I rebelled against it. For me, knowledge is about grasping, it's about knowing, it's about trying to figure something out. It's about, in some ways, a, a false. It can be false, but I think even when it's true, it can be false. And that's the difficulty in what you see in psychoanalysis, which I love about psychoanalysis, that even if you're right, and you tell the patient something that's absolutely right, it, it only captures one piece of something that is maybe right, but it's a selected fact that's right, and you're missing so much more. Tuani's early struggles so strongly revolved around searching for knowledge as a way to overcome being a human in the space, something he initially believed to be a barrier in his work. Overcoming this view, and in turn embracing our own humanity, is a lesson that he now teaches others through his book, The Analyst's Torment, Unbearable Mental States and Countertransference. The book delves into how our personal histories 
backgrounds, traumas, and overall being influence us as listeners. It emphasizes leveraging the givens of who we are to enhance our listening abilities. I had Dwani share how his journey led him to write that book. What I needed to learn, and it took me a long time to learn this, and I'm still not fully learning this, and forgetting it and needing to relearn it. And by relearning, I mean re-experience it and be with it and make sure that I'm emotionally honest and authentic about it is how I get in the way. You know, what is it that I do that gets in the way of me being able to really be with my patients? Because what I've learned over the years is that it's less about what we know often, and it's more about what we can stand and how we can actually stand being with our own feelings and our patients' feelings. You know, it's like, sometimes I I think I forget this and I want to always remember this, which is what we do is a listening science. It's not a talking science. It's not even a conceptual science in many ways. Like, I feel like it can be those things and it should be those things on some levels, but it has to be at its heart a listening science about how we can bear to hear what the other person has to say that is sometimes almost impossible to hear or bear. And where else does that happen in our world where somebody can walk in and really say whatever's on their mind? If it's a racist thought, if it's a violent thought, if it's an unbearable trauma that they never were able to talk to about anybody before that they can finally share, where can a person actually bear and be with those unbearable things and then help that person instead of suffer from it? They could suffer like with it. They can be with it as opposed to feeling like it's tormenting them and hurting them. And uh, I mean, to me, that's like at the essence of what we do. It's simple to say being alone and not being alone. Yeah. Period. It's just powerful the way you put it. it. It's about what we can stand. Yeah. And when someone can't stand something going on in themselves, but they're alone with it and it's a non option because it's where the action is inside to be able to put words to what we try to do, that just trying to bear ourselves, bearing being with someone else is the kind of thing that people look back and say, that's going to help me? You know, is that what we're here to do? Where, you know, don't you need to get busy? Don't you need to give me homework? What sense does that make? I mean, it's a real, it's a real twist, but, but it's a real truth, isn't it? Yeah. That the, the business of learning to be honest with yourself yeah. In an ongoing way, in the face of what feels not possible or desirable or even purposeful, that seems so stupid. <laughs> and yet, yeah. And yet, you're saying that that's the most powerful thing. Yeah, and it's the most difficult thing. And if you think about it, like all the depictions of therapy in popular culture, you'll never see some therapist in in a movie or in a show give out a handbook or even give out a paperwork about analyzing your feelings, actions, and you'll, you'll have a person actually being there, hearing an emotional truth that that person hasn't been able to fully articulate yet. And then that moment where they're actually able to speak the truth about some pain or about something in their life that they've never been able to say. And that's the poignant moment. And of course, it could be romanticized and idealized, and it often is in those kinds of situations. But that is really, to me, the essence of why people come into therapy. They're in pain. They're suffering. And they don't know how any other way to feel about dealing with their suffering than to do what we do in our popular culture, which is to try to figure it out and problem solve it and have some technical approach to fixing it. But I do think 
at its deeper core, they're looking for a place for someone to hold their suffering and to be with it. Not always, but I think often that's what they're really wanting. I mean, there's a million answers to this, but, and it's very personal, right? I mean, I'm thinking there's universal reasons, but then it's endlessly idiosyncratic for each one of us because we have an internal world and no two are the same. But, you know, how can you answer for the sake of our listeners, what makes and keeps that so hard to be honest with the truth of your experience, you know, in the face of something that feels unbearable, not possible, when it's not yours, it's someone else's. I'll just speak about it personally. I think that what makes it difficult for me is when my patients talk about things that resonate with me in a painful way or in a way in which I haven't fully come to terms with or understood and faced my own demons and issues about what I'm suffering from and what's painful for me. I think a lot of our anxiety about being with aspects of other people's emotions, including our own, is that it's, it's painful, it's difficult, and it's, it's really scary, honestly, too, to face certain aspects of ourself that are violent, that are sexual, that are dangerous, that don't conform to the laws of society or good being a quote-unquote good person, like the racist parts of ourselves, the angry parts of ourselves, the parts of us that want to transgress. You know, Freud said it most succinctly when he said, <laughs> it's all about those fantasies of killing or <laughs> having sex that in transgressive ways that can be so unbearable for us. But I, I would want to broaden it too to something more. And this is where I think Freud got it a little bit, not wrong, but maybe he missed a little bit about what it means to suffer from trauma, what it means to feel emotional pain, what it means to go through something that is so unspeakably difficult that you can't even face it yourself, how difficult it was. Also, what's so shameful that feels so alien to who we want to be and how we want to be seen as, and also what feels so guilty too and what provokes so much guilt in us about so many feelings and fantasies that we have that provoke this kind of fear about being punished and about other people finding out, those kinds of things, I think. And it's not just inside. It's a consequence of the interaction with the world outside. I, you know, I don't forget the story you told about being in the car with your kids on the, what, New Jersey Turnpike. And oh, yeah. So I was, I was in New Jersey driving and somebody just was tailing me, so I just let them pass. And when they did... They just shouted out a bunch of racial comments at me, just basically like, go back to your own fucking country kind of thing. And then just all of the feelings that came from that, that were unbearable to me. And in the book, I talk about how that came up for me when a patient inadvertently made a racist comment towards me about being a dirty Indian and how for her it had so many meanings and so many resonant feelings about her past, about who she was and about her whole life experience and about what it meant for her to be in treatment with somebody who's Indian. She was white. But for me in that moment, it just felt like an attack. And it felt like this moment where I couldn't bear the feeling of being attacked again and now in this kind of intimate setting. So in this chapter, I talk about how 
difficult that was for me to try to manage all of that and then still be able to listen to her and be with her and help her with what she was feeling. I mean, not to overvalue any more than to undervalue, but losing the connection and then getting it back or losing that footing within ourselves in terms of self-knowledge, you know, that is the balanced truth in terms of, you know, connecting with someone, you know, there's no such thing as, as living even as a depth clinician in a position of perfect attunement. I appreciated very much. I know the name Bolognini, but I haven't read him as much. And I appreciated your educating me about his notion of what is it called? Empathism versus true empathy. Could you say more about what you know about his thought that way? Sure. So, you know, from my understanding about that, I think what he was speaking to about this was empathism, at least that's the way I, this is, this is the way in which I'm thinking about it, is a kind of forced empathic attitude. It's a, often a position of sentimentality and a way of almost feeling like you have to force yourself into an empathic frame of mind to be with a patient. And by doing so, you often avoid a lot of your own feelings, thoughts, experiences with the patient that you almost have to put away because they're too unbearable for you to feel with the patient. And you put on a kind of posture with them. Like for me, like empathy is an incredibly difficult, very messy experience of us trying to sit with and be with our patients and never fully being able to do it, but being in the kind of, as much as possible, the fullness of our experiences and feelings with them and being and allowing for a more open space of even feelings that maybe feel uncomfortable to us with our patients, like hate, anger, jealousy, all those other feelings that we've talked about that in some ways, a part of empathy is actually being with those feelings and then allowing the space for your patients to be with those feelings too. I love how you said that it's jarring and confusing to be true with someone this way, where they are that's true. Talk about objectivity and subjectivity again, trusting that that combustion, that encounter is going to, is purposeful. It's going to take you somewhere. Yeah. You know, I, I was thinking what you just said reminded me of something actually about this struggle that we also have in, in that term and that I think often gets neglected is this struggle between empathically linking and identifying with our patients and then also recognizing and being appreciative of their separateness. You know, we have to feel like we're connected with our patients, but we also have to deeply respect their separateness and the fact that they are not us and we don't fully understand what they're going through. And that balance, it's not even a balance. It's actually a very messy dialectic, I think, that gets created that is so important to hold. That feeling of connection with our patients is so critical as listeners. Every day, good listening challenges us to reflect within ourselves, to look into our own souls, and to answer honestly, what's really happening for me? The point is not to simply share with our patients. The biggest purpose is to bear those feelings in the space with and for the work with our patients. We try to feel everything running through us truthfully, to let it flow, to allow it to inform us, not to hold it in a negative way, but to be able to feel and know and to think with it. Bearing thoughts and feelings in order to be present, 
to be with our patients in the absolute present moment may be the hardest, most powerful thing we do as clinicians. This is a truth Duani so delicately pondered in his book. So I asked him the question, how do you know? How do you know when you're really doing it successfully? I actually don't. And I keep that an open question in my mind as much as possible. I think where I go with that is I am beginning to understand better when I don't. (laughs) I'm beginning to understand better when I'm not doing that. And just to give you an example of that, like I think one of the things that I've learned is how I play this blame game in my mind. And this actually is one way in which I'm not fully listening. And just to kind of explain that, like when I'm in a state of mind where I'm not being fully what you just said, I tend to start to do this blame game where Sometimes it'll go to the patient. I'm blaming them. I'm upset with them. I have some feelings of negativity towards them. Or then it may go to their spouse or their significant others. Oh, they're the problem. Yeah, they're annoying. They're causing the problem. Or then it will go to their past. Their mother was the problem. Their father was the problem. And then when none of that works, then it goes to me. (laughs) I'm the problem. (laughs) I'm not the good therapist. And when I start to find myself in that kind of hot potato of who's to blame, I know that I'm not in the receptive place of understanding the nuances and subtleties of all of the complexity there about the affective range of experience of what's happening. So what do you do? Right, so then you've got to do the thing of, and it's not easy and it doesn't always work. Right. But you've got to do the thing of saying, wait a minute, what's going on with me? Like, no, really, what's going on with me? No excuses, no rationalizations, like what am I feeling right now or what's happening inside my body that is just I can't tolerate being with this person this way where I have to actually resort to these kinds of simplistic one-dimensional tropes. And then you find something usually. I mean, sometimes it's shame. Sometimes it's a deep like hopelessness that this isn't going anywhere. Like this therapy is, is a waste. Sometimes it's a feeling of some kind of real anger or a feeling helpless, like totally helpless, or feeling scared, you know, feeling frightened by something that they're saying. It's almost like you have to use your body as a supervisor. <laughs> like, you know, we have our supervisors. Yeah, our body speaks to some truths emotionally that's going. We have to cultivate a relationship with our body where we listen to our body, like we listen to our supervisors. I think that's brilliant. I think that's brilliant. Is Am I being greedy if I ask you to give an example? Of a time when you felt yourself oh, yeah, even good... recently playing the blame game? Yeah. So one example I could give is from the book, actually, about my patient in the dissociation chapter who was talking a lot about her day, talking about things that really didn't have any impact on me. And I was sort of going through the motions of being this kind of empathetic, kind of false empathy, like... Just saying, oh, yeah, that must have been really difficult for you. Oh, tell me more about that. Oh, that must have been painful. But I wasn't checking in with my body, and she was picking up on that. And she called me out on it and said, you know, you sound like, I guess now would be the equivalent of a chat GTP therapist who's basically just (laughs) saying back more what is mechanical than really feeling like a human being in the room. And and, and when she said that, at first I, I became defensive, and I wanted to just sort of say back to her, well, you're the problem here. Maybe you should talk about something interesting. But I didn't say that. And then when I, when I felt that anger, in that moment, I finally felt my body because my body was angry. Right. And then I realized how much I was checked out 
from what she was saying that I really wasn't paying attention to my body. And what I was feeling was actually what it came down to, but this took a while, was her unbearable trauma of her sexual abuse and what she went through that. It was so painful and difficult for her. She couldn't put it into words. I didn't want to go there with her. We were both circling around it. And I, I, the first ways in which I felt it, I think, and realized something was going on was when I realized I wasn't feeling it and then feeling the anger. She helped you with her. Our patients, really, they're our first supervisors, our patients. They're our best supervisors. I really do love how you said the body is, but the body is a level of honesty and truth too that they don't have access to. They can see from the outside looking in or feel from the outside looking in, but then you use that, you honored it, and then you said, wait a minute, what's going on? Right. And I like what you said, by the way. Our, our patients often don't know, and they can't always help us. Our bodies sometimes don't know. So you're right to say that. Like, we use all of this as we try our best, but we're not always going to get it right. right? <laughs> as long as we know that that's what we're doing and what we're enacting. <laughs> and the limitations about doing that to the human soul. <laughs> I mean, sometimes we have to. Exactly. Yeah, it's just we have to take on many roles sometimes. We just have to be aware of those roles we take on and, and hold them in a lighter way. So listen, let me, let me ask you, you know, as clinicians, we're living, learning from our experience to quote beyond all the time. So what are you thinking these days? And where is your journey taking you? I've been thinking a lot recently about anxiety and about how it's such an important topic and it sometimes either goes in the direction of manualized treatments for anxiety, which can be helpful, but then they kind of become a little bit uh, dry or one-dimensional, or it becomes about these like philosophical, highfalutin, existential ideas from Heidegger and all of this, where it goes in that direction. But as clinicians, what do we do with anxiety? How do we treat anxiety in our ordinary daily practices? How do we treat guilt anxiety, suffocation anxiety, abandonment anxiety, ontological anxiety and anxiety of death and of being in the world and traumatic anxiety? So that's kind of where my mind is going, how to formulate those questions more in a deeper way for clinicians, but not in a way that's too abstract. And I also feel like sometimes people... Yeah, and, and, and I've noticed that when we talk about anxiety, we often collapse it into one thing, where people have one idea about what anxiety is, and there's just such a broad range of different kinds of anxieties and way in which it gets expressed that I, I feel like is worthwhile for us to know as clinicians, and I'm excited to explore that more. Twani Shaw is a model of the use of self as fine-tuning instrument in the art and science of listening. Humility, yes. He shows and shares himself through his journey of professional development generously, as with the writing of his recent publication, The Analyst's Torment. But it's not about trying to be virtuous. The uprooted little kid who relocated with his family to live in a whole new culture long before he could think abstractly learned to use the feeling of not belonging, of being different, to develop a real hunger for demystifying the mysterious. Flirting with the romantic, feel-good surface of being in his teens couldn't do it for him. His mom's artistic way of creating and then destroying and then recreating depictions of sex and violence, Indian culture and American culture, made him more than wonder. It made him know that the meaning we humans have to negotiate 
hurls us into realms well beyond the rational, well beyond the feeling of freedom to choose, realms within ourselves that we must find a way to love, to embrace in the compassionate human way. Being honest with ourselves is like coming back to middle C on a keyboard with many octaves. Our capacity for empathy is the bridge of our shared humanity. Unbearable comes from feeling left, abandoned, left alone with an experience as a person in a world of other persons. Bearing and believing comes from the unfailing experience of being and being with, the enduring knowledge within ourselves that we are never alone. At the top of this episode, I challenged you to notice just how much you live on assuming others, to think about what holds you back from sharing more of your true self with those closest to you, and to think about the effects your withholding imposes in the space between you and those who are your world. So let me close again with a few of my thoughts, inspired by this conversation with Dwani. As I listened to him, I felt disarmed, relieved by the company I felt with his sharing of his challenge as a colleague and a fellow human. I found myself appreciating the opportunity clinical work makes possible for the professional use of true feelings and what that does for me. Secondly, we all have different levels and angles of hunger for contact with others. How could we not be negotiating the space between us all the time, explicitly and implicitly, to create the space together? But the answer is fear when we boil it down, fear of our impact on others, fear of their expectations or needs of us. And lastly, the quality of our connections rises and falls with the capacity we have or have yet to further develop to do both, to be our true selves and to be with the truth of each other. As Dwani said it so well, where there is knowledge that comes with being, there is a chance to surrender. join us for our next episode as we continue to dive into the space between speaker and listener. You can follow us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed the experience, please tell your friends. Give us a five-star rating. And best of all, become a listener to the listeners and subscribe to The Art of Listening. We hope to be able to keep bringing you new conversations about the power of listening.